Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, the historian Susanna Glickman looks back at the evolution of quantum computing and explains why scientists, entrepreneurs and financiers have been so enamored with this nascent technology. But first, the living world is all about adaptation. On short timescales, many organisms can modify their physiology in response to change. A familiar human example is the Couch to 5 Kilometer program that gently changes sedentary people into runners in just nine weeks. On longer timescales, evolution is also an adaptation process. Now, you might think that this is biology, and it has little to do with physics. But a new field of physics is emerging that focuses on how living matter stores, retrieves, and processes information during adaptation. Here's Physics World's Margaret Harris in conversation with a pioneer in the physics of adaptation. It isn't often that you get a chance to develop a new field of physics, but my guest today is aiming to do just that. Margaret Gardell is a biophysicist at the University of Chicago in the U.S., and she's also the inaugural director of Chicago's Center for Living Systems. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here, Margaret. So what is the Center for Living Systems? It's a really broad name. It could be almost about anything, couldn't it? Of course, yeah. You want centers to reflect the breadth and the scope, the large scope of your ambitions. This center was uh, started through a grant from the National Science Foundation through the Physics Directorate. And these Physics Directorate fund centers called Physics Frontier Centers that aim to expand the breadth of physics into new areas. So existing centers touch in areas on cold atoms and quantum information sciences and astronomy. And so our center is the extension of physics with the frontier of the living world, right? How do you, how do you build up physical principles that describe dynamics that we see in biological systems? And that's the broad name. During the, the center is funded for six years through our, our initial um, term. And um, we chose to focus on a problem that really reflects upon the strengths that physicists bring to study of biological systems. And that is trying to understand general principles that can be brought across different time and length scales to understand how biological systems and molecules are really different. Biological matter is different from matter that we find in the physical world. So one thing that you can really think that's different about living matter is that it is sort of synonymous with life, that, it, that living systems can process information from their environment and then use this environmental information to change their form and their function, right? At the longest timescales, this obviously results in evolution, right? You can evolve different molecules and organisms to survive in different habitats, but this also can occur at um, the scale of understanding how the shape of a tissue is formed, right? Over developmental timescales and or how a brain uh, processes new information. So how do you build a collection of, of matter that is able to process this information and change its properties and behavior over time? And that's the, those are the questions we're going to be asking in this center. So one phrase I've seen used in reference to the center is the physics of adaptation in strongly driven systems. You talked a little bit about, you know, the, the fact that organisms 
unlike inert matter, can adapt to their environments. What's meant by a strongly driven system? Yeah, so in physical matter, right, you you form the piece of matter and then it sort of it settles to its lowest energy state. Sometimes this it can get frustrated and set in a metastable state, but it really takes a lot of energy to disturb it from this lowest energy state. Now, in in living matter, you're constantly bombarded by energy. The scales of inter- interactions be in living matter is is so weak and the scales of energy that you you get from chemical energy or light is strong enough to drive it out of these ground states or these metastable states so that the matter can explore different configurations. So when you are able to drive matter out of these metastable states and explore this landscape, that's what we mean by a strongly driven system. It's far from equilibrium and it's able to understand, um, explore the dynamics of its energetic landscape in surrounding areas. And this is what we mean by adaptation. What's an example of a strongly driven system? You know, is it an organism or, or something? For instance, I mean, anything, even at the scale of a biological molecule, right? A protein that is, that is receiving chemical energy, and that chemical energy is driving conformational changes of this protein to allow the protein to do work, right? This is uh, using, exploiting an external energy source. So you don't aren't just relying on thermal energy of your um, uh, of the the water bath that that molecule is sitting in, because biological matter is constructed out of biomolecules that all are enzymatically active. Basically, all of biology is strongly driven at at these different scales, both from the molecular up to the organism, up to collections of organisms. Right. So we think about uh, a flock of birds. Uh, penguins, right? You might look at it and take a snapshot. If you ever see them closely packed enough, they form quasi-crystalline lattices, right? And so this is what you think of if you think of uh, a collection of atoms. You can think of crystalline lattices of physical atoms. But you know, you you can think of each penguin as having an active um, stress or force or motion, and this also drives collective dynamics of this uh, collection of organisms. So strongly driven can be applied um, at any of these scales. And the physics of active matter, the idea of of treating, of thinking about systems where you have to consider these these sources of of internal drive and stresses is an area of physics that's really been established over the past uh, 15 to 20 years. Um, And so we're building upon that to understand how strongly driven systems can adapt. How did you get interested in this area in the first place? Well, so I think that... At UChicago, um, we became really interested in this question because there are a lot of researchers here. There's a there's an interest in from material science, right? So people who study the mechanics of, of soft materials and understanding how these materials, such as a glass, say glassy materials, from my colleague Sid Nagel, can store information from the metastable configurations of the the glassy packings. And he has been exploring this for many years now, the past decade, to understand how the disorder in these materials can actually retain information of previous drive. So that's in a sort of fundamental materials question. Now, on the other side of this, those of us coming from a biological physics background have been understanding how to 
tackle descriptions of biological matter with increasingly quantitative tools that have been enabled by uh, techniques and, um, and, and ability to control biological systems across these different scales that have come about in the past several decades. So we have now been able to uh, collect data on biological systems and realize that this was really, this type of physics was really needed. And so we need to merge these areas of our understanding of physics of strongly driven systems with increasing quantities and capabilities of our data sets and control over biological data sets that we didn't have in the past. So it really, at, at UChicago, the idea for the center came from this nexus of, of collection of researchers interested in, um, in strongly driven and far from equilibrium materials from a um, sort of a condensed matter perspective and a convergence of that with those of us um, who are studying this in, in biological processes. So what are the benefits of bringing together these two different groups of people to study this, these problems in a kind of an interdisciplinary way? Yeah, well, I think that if we think historically, the what the field of physics has done is find principles that can be generalized, that, that are across systems that become not specific to, say, the chemical origins or the, the molecular mechanisms of that process and help us organize how to how to think about a problem and how to ask questions in this field. And in biological physics, you know, this is a field that has really come um to be developed, I would say that you know, for a long period of time, tools from physics were then being applied and exported to study quantitative biological problems. But increasingly now, the tools and the capabilities in this field are sufficient to demonstrate to us where new physics understanding is needed, because these systems are very different than the kinds of physics that we've developed for physical matter. So um, the advantage of developing this as a center, instead of say isolating it, say I have we have colleagues in the center that are doing this for molecular evolution or molecular uh, systems, understanding circadian rhythms or immune response or neuroscience or developmental biology. If you only develop theories that are good in each of those questions of adaptation, you're not going to understand a sort of a general principle of understanding how these systems can work. And really, I think this is at the heart of understanding why life is different than, you know, inert physical matter, right? So I think that this is the strength that physicists can bring is really understanding what theories and ideas can bridge across these different scales. You mentioned some tools that have been fairly recently developed and, and have started to be applied to biological problems that have been brought in from physics. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, well, even starting, um, so I've been a faculty member for 16 years now. And so even when I started my career, the tools from molecular biology were really empowering a whole new area of quantitative biology and engineering. And this is tools from molecular biology, structural biology, and imaging. Right. So um, so this has allowed us to both manipulate um, concentrations, activities of molecular species in, in living cells, engineer those molecules, synthesize those components outside the cells. So having control over the system, it's like imagine a transition from a time where you you're studying condensed matter physics and all you do is go out into the nature and or the material that you find. <laughs> right. That's what we were doing in biology versus one where you can bring it into the lab and start to manipulate and play with it and really build up and find um specific examples that you would like to optimize or understand specific uh, unique properties of. And so that was the transition that's been happening in biology, actually, for 
for, I would say, you know, the past 20 years or so. So that's allowed uh, quantitative physical scientists to really start being able to ask and tackle these questions of how do we build mathematical uh, rules and predictive theories of biological dynamics. Now, more recently than that, um, the imaging of biological and the ability to manipulate biological specimens through this molecular engineering has gotten increasingly, uh, it's become more um, tractable and, um, and with more control. In the past, say, five to 10 years, it's really the, the ability to take, uh, 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 you know, machine learning or data science approaches to capture and infer new statistical correlations in this data. Because the other aspect of biological systems is, say, unlike uh, simple materials, right, there's lots of different components that are interacting. And oftentimes when we're trying to tackle these questions, we impose a bias in um, our understanding from the physical world into what things we would like to measure on these systems. So what the uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence approaches bring us is another tool in our, in our sort of tool set that allow us to um, do it in an agnostic way to ask what, what correlations and what strong um, uh, correlations exist in the data that without imposing our internal biases. So that's another approach that really has, um, it's just starting to see as powerful and we're very interested and we are developing ways of integrating data science approaches into new physical, our ability to build new physical models of, of biological systems. So I'd say those two tools outside of physics have really allowed us to start asking these physics questions in new ways and really empower us to um, explore those. So the center, you, you mentioned, will be funded initially for six years. What do you hope to accomplish in that time? What sort of problems do you hope to solve? Yeah, so I, I really hope that, so right now, um, um, so we have three three areas that we're focusing on. One is um, a focus area with six faculty um, that is led by my colleagues Arvind Rubin and Mike Rust, who are going to be exploring how biological molecules can adapt over evolutionary timescales. So how does evolution, the process of evolution, build ad adaptable parts? Then the so that's that's a collection of trying to understand new tools to understand um, adaptation at evolutionary timescales. In another uh, section of, of of six faculty led by Aaron Dinner and Stephanie Palmer, this brings together systems of questions from immunology and neuroscience. So complex um, si um, information processing systems, and asks us to understand how do these complex systems in biology. Um, what information do they choose to select and how do they choose take that information to change function? So how do you learn something new? How does your immune system know how much to be active and whether to activate an immune response? So they're going to be bringing together different areas of, of biological systems to develop a um, new ideas about how, how do you process information in complex biological systems. The third effort, which I'm leading with my colleague Vincenzo Vitelli, is how do you build physical machines that are constituents of mechanochemical dynamical systems that are really at the heart of how biological um, organisms control their shape, 
from the subcellular up to the tissue scale. So how do you actually build an organism that can control and change its shape over time, both during development, but also during processes like wound healing? So those are the three areas. Um, you can see that they span different areas of this question of adaptation. Those are the scientific goals. In each of those, we aim to catalyze um, discussion. So develop leadership of help lead our field, uh, right? We're not, not the only researchers in the world studying this. So we want to develop collaboration and really catalyze new discoveries in this field for researchers um, who are interested in these questions, um, both nationally and internationally. It really seems to be that you're, you're expanding what physics is about. I mean, when you started studying physics, you know, most people will learn about, you know, forces on inclined planes and, and ballistic trajectories and this sort of thing. You know, how did how did physics sort of evolve into being concerned with, with these kind of processes? Yeah, I mean, I, that's funny. I mean, I've always been interested in, in this, even going back to the kinds of questions I was interested in when I started selecting who to work for as a graduate student. I think that, you know, in, if I think of the subsection of condensed matter physics, which really grew out of our ability to understand electronic structure and structure of matter um, in crystals, right? The idea of bringing in disorder into these systems and how do you actually drive these systems out of um, their lowest energy state is something that's been of interest to a lot of researchers. For a lot of the quantum systems are also strongly driven systems. And uh, in material science, the idea of having adaptable function is also something at the forefront of material science. So I think that the, the edge of, say, traditional condensed matter is also moving to this idea of how do you get a reconfigurable, strongly, how does drive allow you to reconfigure your properties? Um, I didn't quite answer your question, Margaret. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, when you, when you take physics classes, you know, there's, because physics is such a mature discipline, uh, I think education does start historically, right? So we start with fields um, uh, that have, we've been successful at uh, developing math to understand. But obviously, as a research area, Physics has always been interested in understanding, developing mathematical formalism to understand more and more complex phenomena, uh, you know, across uh, across different scales. So I, I do think that there are some interesting things to ask about what we teach our our undergraduates and how to encourage them to go into what modern research areas. But I think you know when you're undergraduate, you barely get into AMO physics, or you know, you it takes a while to get into astronomy or high energy physics. So I do think that our physics education doesn't always hit upon what researchers do in the lab all the time, anyways. And I think I I, I think that is an interest of mine to think about how to incorporate more of those ideas into undergraduate physics education. Well, maybe some undergraduates listening to this podcast will hear about this and think, oh, that's what I want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I always think about under, um, you know, physics as an approach. And I, I fell in love with physics because it was a it was a way to start using mathematics to understand my, the world around me. Right. And that's and when you think about it that way, you know, you can study anything using the tools of physics. Margaret Gardell, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. Earlier this year, I attended the Commercializing Quantum Global Conference in London. While there were some physicists there, most delegates seemed to be from the worlds of business and finance. Indeed, it was clear that lots of money was being invested in quantum computing, despite the fact that the technology is far from settled. 
To explore why so much money has been spent on quantum computers, Physics World's Mateen Durrani meets a historian who has chronicled the evolution of quantum computing. So I'm joined down the line by Susanna Glickman, who has just done a PhD in the history of quantum computing. Hi, Susanna. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. Yeah. Now, I've never met anyone who's got a degree in mathematics and anthropology, um, which sounds a great combination. Um, Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into that? Sure. I mean, it sort of happened... um, like organically. I don't know. I I realized I loved mathematics sometime in college. I hated it in high school, but I took a bunch of, you know, I I went to undergrad at uh, Reed College and they do a a sort of mathematics program that's not as much calculation, a lot more like proofs and analytic thinking. Um, And I found I I really enjoyed that. And I I wanted to sort of, I was also attracted to anthro. I I don't know why, you know, you're a young person. (laughs) And it's funny because I sort of ended up uh, doing neither exactly as I'm, you know, a a historian uh, and in a proper history department. But I I think that both fields, you know, kind of ended up being very influential in my work. Like I I ask the kinds of questions that Anthro asks and use some of the methodologies. Like I do a lot of oral histories. Um, And also, you know, my technical background has been very important, but also the way in which that kind of mathematics teaches you to think sort of uh, in, in really interesting and creative ways. Um, but I, I guess I sort of thought I could do both at some point, which is sort of not true. I've tried to keep my technical side alive by taking graduate courses. But in like, you know, um, I, I wanted to learn more about machine learning. I took some of that. I took one in um, on, on quantum computing, actually, from some folks from IBM who came down. Uh, but it is an unusual background. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, so this, this PhD, which you've just um, completed and you've got through it, so congratulations. Um, so it's a PhD in the history of quantum computing. I mean, is, is that the first PhD in the field? Um, are you the first person? Is that your claim to fame or have there been other people who've done that? Um, I'm not, I mean, it's such a new field and it's odd to do a history of something that seems so like contemporary. I mean, my, my, so my research goes back to 45, it could go earlier, like, but, but, uh, I've met a few other people who are studying the field, but I, I think I haven't met any other like PhDs. There's definitely people in the policy world. Um, and I find, you know, their work is super interesting. Um, but yeah, I sort of, I ended up. Uh, I ended up here also, kind of randomly and organically. I uh, it, it, in college, I really loved abstract algebra and like group theory and linear algebra. And linear algebra, there's lots of applications. But um, I was told, you know, you you know, you're doing this fun mathematics, but you're never going to be able to do it, you know, as a as a career. And then there was one professor who, you know, was like, "Well, you you actually can," and it's if you want to work on quantum algorithms, they use these fields. And so I I ended up doing my uh, year-long math thesis in undergrad in quantum algorithms and specifically optimizing queries for the dihedral hidden subgroup problem. Um, And um, I hadn't heard anything about quantum computers. I didn't know what they did or, you know, anything about them. Uh, I was just really excited about the mathematics 
Um, and then when I sort of learned more about quantum computing, I, I kept asking my advisor, you know, it's like the anthro side of me, I guess, uh, you know, why we were writing algorithms for computers that didn't exist and, and might never exist, you know, especially when I was starting out, it was completely, you know, uncertain. Or how he thought about the fact that he was uh, working on this, doing this kind of work. And, you know, I get also this answer from a lot of other people that, you know, you get to do exciting math. And if it works, that's great. If not, you know, it's been fun. But also he kept citing um, Charles Babbage. He kept saying, oh, you know, he was doing uh, he was doing um, computing before computers. And, um, you know, how algorithms can come before their machines or whatever. Uh, but... But of course, you know, that was sort of unsatisfactory because it's not like Babbage had this idea that there would be a computer at some point, right? Or that, you know, that he, that he was writing algorithms at all. Uh, so I found it unsatisfactory. And it's sort of that question that I entered graduate school with, you know, how is it that you can build an infrastructure around uh, machines that don't exist or might never exist? Right. So I guess the question is, you know, what's the answer to that question? Did you did you find it out in your thesis? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm always, you know, I, I take a sort of scientific approach to things. You just look around for as many years as possible and then try to synthesize something that makes sense. So I think I'm in some ways still synthesizing. But basically, I ended up um, going down a series of rabbit holes. Um, and, um, you know, I, my basic argument is that... Um, you know, how speculative technological ventures become material and the infrastructure that make it possible. That's that's what I look at. And I guess, the, yeah, I argue that the infrastructure that makes these kinds of speculative projects like quantum computing possible, and specifically in this historical moment, right? Uh, not throughout time, but uh, it sort of comes from the history of the, um, the semiconductor industry in the U.S. state and specifically um, how a network of actors organizing against the pressures of neoclassical economic thought, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the context of the conflict with Japan around semiconductors and economic dominance. At the very end of the Cold War, <clears throat> rearranged governance and political economy around redeeming the, the promises of speculative technologies and the future they claim to enable or foreclose. So the, the first half of my dissertation is an account of where that infrastructure came from, using the history of the semiconductor industry and the U.S. government, sort of looking at... Um, the political actions of small businesses, proto startups, as well as like major companies. Um, and the second half looks at, you know, how this actually works in practice, how the system that was set up in that historical moment makes it possible for uh, technologies like quantum computer, computing and quantum computers or, you know, many other speculative technologies to, to write. But I look especially at quantum computing since that's what I did my uh, field work in and, uh, you know, spend a lot of time uh, thinking about. So who were the people who, um, I mean, you talked about funding a technology that doesn't exist yet. Is I mean, is that a hard thing to do to persuade funders to put money into something and set up industries in areas that don't exist yet? Um, what, what, what powers of persuasion do people need to, to get that to happen? So I looked at like a number of different things. I mean, I think it is a tough lift. I mean, the assumption I came in with is this is this is an extraordinary thing that this network of, of people have accomplished. And I, you know, started out by following around a lot of the early practitioners. Like, you know, I, I'm definitely, at, you know, at the uh, 
the generosity of people like, you know, Scott Aronson and Charlie Bennett sort of letting me look at, you know, and meet all of these, these early practitioners. And it, I got the sense that there were a few different things happening. And, and part of it is this semiconductor stuff that I'm talking about and the way in which both at a material level and ideological level, it constructed, you know, these massive infrastructures, but also, you know, part of that and, and the semiconductor industry does this as well as I looked at the role of history and the way that history becomes um, like a, in many ways, functions as like a predictive device. So the way that you tell history and the way that you represent history and, and how uh, how powerful that is and how it's frequently used to sort of project futures as, you know, and present them as sort of inevitable or natural or something like that. So it's the kind of power of histor historians. And I mean, Bob Creese, who, who wrote about your um, thesis in a recent article on Physics World, I mean, he said he was surprised, you know, the, the approach that quantum physicists took to keeping their material, that they sort of kept kept hold of it um, because they kind of felt they were on the cusp of, the, you know, this incredible breakthrough technology. Was that was that true? Did they did they have sort of material to hand? Is that He was saying that, you know, they kept stuff knowing that this was going to be gold dust for historians. Yeah, I mean, I was, I kept being surprised at the ways in which practitioners, and not only were they sort of preserving history and, and telling their own histories, I think in some ways, because they felt like, you know, because history ends up being such a powerful tool in, in policymaking and funding, I think they wanted to, you know, have it told the right way. And, you know, there's, but also that they'd actually engaged with my field a lot, like they, they were very up to date on the literature in my field, which I thought was fascinating you know you don't often have that luxury or like get their pers you know they wanted to talk to me about how the history was written and you know but i mean the field is very diverse you met like oh, i met like a ton of different people with different relationships to the history some people have a you know but but they were all what was common between you know even the the tech side and the the more sort of like traditional physics side was this keen interest in history which yeah, I mean, as a historian, it's a luxury, but also, in a way, you, you get all this material, it's selected for you, it's a little overdetermined. And, you know, I, I've been trying to think through, you know, as I begin the process of turning this into a book, you know, what that actually means at, for me as a historian writing about the field. Oh, so you've got a book out as well, is that right? Or do you mean your thesis? Oh, I'm going, well, I mean, typically what happens is you turn your dissertation into a book. And so, I, you know, I'm is I'm beginning to think about what that would look like and, you know, what I want to add and, you know, the things I want to kind of, I left a few questions open that I want to close, but um, yeah, I, I, I intend to publish a, a book. Excellent. And so is there a message you've got for people listening who are working in quantum computers, you know, uh, you know, what should they do to sort of help shape that history? Oh, I, you know, the field does contain multitudes, you know, I've met people and, and I, there's not exactly something I can say that would pertain you know, to everyone. But I, and I, I found people in the field to be quite thoughtful about this, but I guess, um, in general, being mindful, uh, to avoid sort of the tech hype and sort of bubbles, uh, in the infrastructure that's built around sort of pump and dump, dump cycles in, in the tech industry while also getting like the funding that, that obviously they need um, to do their work. And, the, you know, the amazing amount of fundamental research that's come out of the field, I think that um, 
So, you know, I also really, when I met the early practitioners in the field, I really um, came to admire the kind of, maybe because the field was so small, but I came to admire the, um, the community that they built together and like the intellectual curiosity and spirit of like, I don't know, um, like wonder at like what they were doing um, in, in these early communities. And I, I, I hope that that adheres through, through the field, even as it does get, you know, commercialized and brought into all these other kinds of, uh, you know, infrastructures. I mean, are there many other people doing what you're doing? Or is it just you on your own? That must have been quite daunting to sort of feel you've got to be the first person in this area trying to set the tone and find out all the, the sort of basics. It must be quite difficult. Yeah. And I, you know, I wanted to strike a balance and, and it's also a difficult thing because, you know, there's not a lot of secondary literature that you can rely on. And, and I, that's why I waited so long to publish on it. Cause I really wanted to talk to everyone and do a lot of um, archival work and sort of absorb what was there before I made sense of it. And, uh, you know, I, but, but yeah, I do, I do feel like there's, um, you know, some responsibility in, in shaping, the, especially because my research is about, you know, the ways in which his, histories get used in policy, the way that histories get used in constructing things. That It means that the role of the historian is different than, you know, we often like to think of ourselves as outside politics or, um, you know, there's been these debates in my field for a long time about, um, you know, what, what our role is in intervening in the subjects that we, you know, anthropologists are always, you know, thinking about this because of the currentness of that, but the historians sometimes have the luxury not to, but I, I think, you know, what I found and how, how much the history has to do with what happens in the present, it made me feel like I have to really think carefully about, you know, how I'm presenting this, um, because my, my gripe about physicists is that, you know, they, they look down, do they look down their nose a bit at history? They think, oh, well, history's easy. I could do that. You often get physicists, they retire and they go, right, I'm going to do a bit of history as if it's some sort of very simple thing. I mean, you're a sort of professionally qualified historian. That just did that. Does that annoy you? Do, you? do you find that attitudes quite a bit? Well, maybe I had the good fortune to be with people who like, you know, I, I kind of, kept expecting to get that attitude. And, um, you know, like I, I definitely, when I was in the role of an anthropologist, you would absolutely get that attitude. And for some reason, I, I felt like they had a lot of respect for history. I mean, they did want to, you know, there are all these people who want to be amateur historians, but I think the, for the most part, they understand themselves. They want, you know, they kept being like, I want this written the right way. I want, you know, uh, a historian to do it, which made me feel like they have sort of, but, but I do think you're right. There is this, you know, sense in which like, you know, there's this separation between STEM, which is really quite serious. And like for the, the people who have the best minds, and then there's the social sciences and humanities, which are, you know, sort of lesser. Um, and I kept expecting to see more of that than I, than I did. And maybe it's just cause I'm, you know, I'm a historian. I kept introducing myself as a historian. Um, but, um, yeah, I do think that, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I also agree that it does require, you know, a sort of, um, um, discipline. Like you do have to be in, in the discipline to write a certain kind of history. I was going to say, sorry, we're slightly going off track a bit. I mean, what is the secret to being a, a good historian? I think, what what skills do you need? What 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 sort of attributes do you need that maybe physicists might not realise are the sort of key things to do good history? 
Oh, that's a tough question because everyone does things differently. And, you know, but I, I think, you know, I, I believe in sort of, you know, like I've said before, being open to, you know, not really knowing what you're getting involved with when you, when you, when you get, you know, you know, like looking at a lot of the evidence as expansively as possible. And I think drawing on a lot of different fields, time periods, ways of thinking, because history is like, you know, it is like this alien zone in this way. Like a lot of our assumptions are different and like word meanings even drift, you know, like the, the things that maybe we think are constant. And so it does require this like anthropological lens, which I, I think is um, something that I, I, I took out of my, my anthro training. And I think historians, you know, good historians look at history like that as something, you know, completely new and different and try not to bring in your own uh, assumptions while also acknowledging, right, that you, you, they're inescapable and your, your temporality is sort of with you. Um, and, you know, the, the disciplinary aspects of that are like, you know, reading widely in history, being um, trained in your field and trained to engage with um, archival documents in a specific way. Who did you have the most fun talking to or dealing with? Were there any favorite quantum people out there that you'd want to name check who were really helpful to you? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, honestly, I loved getting to know the community and all of its sort of diverse aspects. You know, every, you know, I, and I, you know, talked with people from uh, government who are fantastic, uh, from private industry and also from the academic world, quasi academic world. But I, I know that my research would not have been possible without um, Scott Aronson and, and Charlie Bennett, uh, who were very generous to me when I first started and introduced me to like a world of people that I was, you know, um, it was, you know, it was really incredible and allowed me to kind of follow, follow them around <laughs> a little bit. So what are you working on now? You're obviously still in, involved in that. Are you doing any other projects? Yeah, so I'm, well, I'm starting uh, my new job as a, an assistant professor at Stony Brook. So immediately, like, you know, I'm, I'm developing some classes. But then, uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be the process of turning my dissertation into a book, maybe publishing selections from it or like things that came out of it uh, that I never got to finish. You know, there's this chapter I really want to write on the role of small, these, these small businesses in the late seventies. And, and there's, there's also this really interesting period at the end of Vietnam, when there's all these unemployed scientists and engineers who start building a political machine that then has all these like really interesting effects later on. So that that's something I'm working on and I'll be presenting on uh, this fall, I think. Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast when you've got some, uh, new findings for us so thanks Susanna great to have you and uh, good luck with the rest of your burgeoning career as a historian thanks so much for having me this is lovely that was the historian Susanna Glickman in conversation with Mateen Durrani our columnist Robert Kreese has written about Susanna's work and you can find his article on the Physics World website just look for the headline, Why Was So Much Spent on Quantum Computers Before They Even Existed? I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. 
Host Andrew Gluster speaks to two physicists who are working to overcome inequality in society. They look at how international policymaking can be strengthened by the contribution of more people with backgrounds in fundamental science, and how patterns in consumer energy usage can be used to reveal local inequalities. That episode is called Physics for Fairness, Tackling Global Sustainability Challenges Through Science, and it can be found on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.